Good morning. I'll extend the welcome that's already been given you uh, so far. And would you turn with me to Romans chapter 8? That is found in the New Testament. And if you want to use the Bible that's in the pew or the chair, we'll be reading on page 944. If you don't have that Bible, but you brought one and you still don't know where Romans is, get to the New Testament somewhere. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Now, we're going to take this passage. It's listed as 14 through the end of the chapter, but we're going to take sections, and we're not going to even start with the beginning section for various reasons. Um, We'll we'll begin uh, with the section, verse 31. But I just want to underscore the title, Live the Forgiven Life. Or you could put this this way, live as a forgiven person. Ryan referred to this. I, I, can't name, I can't number the times people have said to me, well, I, I know I'm forgiven. I, I know Jesus died for my sins. Settle, fixed, not a problem. Except they're riddled with doubts, riddled with a lack of a sense of God's favor and love. They don't taste his love, experience his love. They don't live out his favor so that it gives them resilience and spending themselves. They find difficulty in forgiving others. Uh, Just multiplies out. And of course, it affects every relationship. Uh, Many marriages deeply affected by this disconnect uh, between what we can say or what we know is the right answer. You know, you know the right answer. Does God forgive your sins? Yes, I can show you right here. He forgives me. But when it gets down to our heart, we're living out that forgiveness. That's a whole different thing. And it's not different in the sense that you, you have to know the one and then do the other. But it's really getting at how much do I believe that he's forgiven my sins? What are the ways in which I don't believe that he's forgiven my sins? Where am I infected with unbelief? Where is my innate brokenness that God is repairing still blocking all of these, this sense of his love and favor that would allow me to live in greater liberty and love to others? That's what we're going to look into. And this passage in Romans 8 is... One of the most glorious passages in scripture, it just lays out one thing after another, after another, in terms of what God has done for us. And I want to see it under this rubric of a forgiven life to, to know these things and experience them and to live in the light of them is to live the forgiven life. But a lot of times we, we don't put the two together. So I know it's pretty cheesy, but I'm always, and I, well, then I really am giving myself away that I've watched the movie more than once, uh, or at least this part of it, National Treasure. I, please forgive me. I know, cheesy movie. Okay. But at the end, when they 
finally, after all of these things and all the doubts and the tax, there's not really a treasure. His dad even doubts that there's a treasure and all this. And they open up this room. At first, you're pretty taken with how magnificent the treasure. They found it. But the beginning room looks maybe half as big as this place, you know. And you think, wow, that's amazing. They found the treasure until they put the torch in the trough and the light shoots out. And it's like if you had a football field full every square inch of the most priceless treasure, that's what the room looked like. Okay. I would like for you to think of this passage in that way. As we begin to read it, I hope that you will see these are the treasures that is that are mine because I'm forgiven. This is what forgiveness brings me. The favor of all these riches poured into my life. And we have to ask, is this what controls you day by day? You know that phrase that Paul uses that the love of Christ governs us or controls us is really a function of forgiveness. It's like, I know I'm loved by God. I know he favors me. I know he smiles upon me. I know he's doing good. Look at all these things that he promises me and gives me. He favors me. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. It's, that is the, the biggest fight in the Christian life is to ride the wave of awe and astonishment at God's goodness to you. And it all comes from forgiveness. From being accepted, from having your sins taken away. We often fall under that wave uh, a lot. <clears throat> I've, I've never surfed, but I've always loved body surfing. And there's nothing like you catch that wave and you end up actually rubbing your, your stomach hits the sand in the end, you know, because <laughs> you go. But many times you catch it wrong and you're just tumbling, like trying to find uh, where you are. <clears throat> And that describes my life a lot of forgiveness, you know, of getting caught up in all of my brokenness and my doubts and my unbelief and all of my sin. And I don't know which way is up. So let's look at this together. So we'll begin with verse 31. After saying a lot up to this point, beginning back with his discussion of our being sons of God. Paul has this great statement. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And you could also make that what can be against us. Can anything in the world really oppose us? That's what he's saying. And what's the answer, everybody? Nothing, right? No, is there anything against us? Now, it doesn't mean there aren't things against us, even people against us. It doesn't mean that there aren't spiritual forces that are out to destroy us. It's not the real thing you say. But in the end, as we just saw in Sunday school class, the spiritual forces now are the footstool of God. They don't stand in the way of his purpose. He's carrying out his purpose in our lives. And that's the point here. If God is... On our side and everything in him is completely for us and his favor is upon us. What can stand against God? Nothing can. And 
the fact that God is for us is a part of the fact that he has truly forgiven us. If he hadn't forgiven you, if all of your sins aren't cast behind him and, and they're no longer associated with how he deals with you, he couldn't favor you. He couldn't be for you. It's the fact that you're absolutely forgiven that now he's for you. Does he see your sin presently? Does he know you're a sinner? Yeah, you know about this much. He knows this much, right? It's the iceberg thing, you know, got the Titanic in trouble, right? Yeah, he knows all of this, but he's for you because he's forgiven you. And then you can see how much Paul is trying to drive this point home. He's trying to dispel any doubts, all of unbelief. He wants his readers to experience fully how God is for them. And so he begins to talk about uh, his son who he did not spare, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We're going to come back to that. But I want to skip now to verse 33, which takes up the cry of verse 31. Who can be against us? Right? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who's going to come in and bring a charge when he says, it is God who justifies. The word justify means an absolute pronouncement of not guilty, Absolute, forever, unchangeable pronouncement. Your sins are forgiven. You are declared righteous and accepted by me forever. It will never change. All right. If God justifies, who's the person coming in to bring the charge? Where are you going to find one? Who gets to come in the courtroom of heaven? Who's admitted in there to say anything else? No one. Does it matter that even people may have things against you? Maybe people haven't even forgiven you of certain things you've done, even though you've asked them. Maybe you haven't even asked in the right way, or or maybe in some cases you don't even know that you've hurt people. There's so much mess in our life. What if there are people that have things against you? That doesn't count in God's courtroom. Now, if God brings it to your mind and he works in your heart and you taste his forgiveness, you're going to try to reconcile with people. Yes. But you see, there's no one that can bring a charge. He's the one that justifies. There's no other voice. There's no one else allowed. And then he asks again, you see how he's trying to drive this in your head, in my head. Who will bring any charge? Who is to condemn? There's no one that condemn because God's the only one that can condemn and he will not condemn because he's justified you. That's your verdict. Is it justification? Uh, Am I justified or am am I condemned? You're justified. There's no condemnation. Nobody can condemn you. We love to condemn ourselves, right? We, We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We love to hang on to our guilt, We love to hang on to how bad we are because it allows us to tip our lives and bend them them in toward ourselves instead of them pushing out to give ourselves away to others because of the joy of being forgiven. Guilt is an interesting thing. 
we, we can be so self-righteous, so about ourselves, so prideful, so scared of admitting that we've done things as badly as we have that we don't even want to think about forgiveness and we hold on to our self-righteousness. But then we can also, on the other side, be full of self-pity and, and guilt and I'm just too evil for God to forgive and we push it away. It doesn't matter how you push it away. Both of those allow you to bend in on yourself and to refuse the difficult things of pushing into others' lives, of husbands being kind and tender-hearted to their wives and humble before them. That's a function of being forgiven. Meanness is not in agreement with being forgiven. Now, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. I think I've told you, I know I've told you several people this, but maybe not everybody. One time early in my life, last week, no. <laughs> that's, that's uh, you know, euphemism for last week. Um, I, it was early in our marriage, and I was, I was being holy, Okay. I mean, I was really being holy. I was having a quiet time. I'm a pastor having his quiet time. You don't bother a pastor who's having his quiet time because he's a holy man, you know? He's busy about the things of God. You can't interrupt that. Well, guess who interrupted me? With something she needed to ask me about. Yes, my tender wife who I committed to, I will love you and think of you more than myself, etc. So she says something to me. I'm like, what? Tense? Angry? And you know, when God convicted me of that, thankfully, a little while after that, I thought, who do you think you were worshiping? Who do you think you were talking to? Who in the world, what in the world do you think you were even doing? Like you were caught up with the love of Christ and forgiveness. And so naturally when your wife comes in, you, you know, give her that love. <laughs> so working out forgiveness is a difficult thing. Paul drives this home. Who will bring a charge? Who is their condemned? To condemn. And then he just builds his case, right? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And he's already said that right again in verse 32. He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now he's speaking about it from the aspect of Christ. Verse 32 is the aspect of the Father. He gave his son, he didn't withhold his son, he gave him for you. Christ died for us. And recently I was, I was actually driving and I was really plagued at, the, at that time of the day for several different reasons with regrets of my life. And boy, by the time you get my age, 39, you have a lot of regrets. <clears throat> so, and, and I, I've, I've talked about this before that I think faith 
operates in several different ways. One way faith operates is you trust Christ for forgiveness. Another way faith operates is you trust God for change. But an ever-widening aspect of faith is to trust him for all the things that you've done wrong. That he will work all things together for good. And he'll bind you up. And he'll still hold you and he'll still do you good. But here's the exercise, and I encourage you. I started bringing every one of those. I I, I even started with some of the ones I was thinking about to the darker places of my life. And I would see every dark, terrible thing I've thought and said. And, of course, I'm still skimming the surface. I know it's just the tip of the iceberg. But I would see Christ looking at me in favor and taking that sin upon himself And bearing it away. Bearing the wrath away. And another one that just plagued me. I think Jesus smiling upon me and bearing it away. Bearing another away. Bearing another away. That's that's what it means when Paul says, He died. He didn't spare his own son. He gave his son to bear away. So that there's no condemnation for you. There's full forgiveness. And then he says, more than that, he was raised. This is the demonstration that his death completely paid for sin. You don't have to doubt that. He's at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us. So get the point. Not only is there no one condemning or bringing a charge against you. But here on the other side is God who's declared you justified and you have one who's interceding on your behalf. I have paid for his sin. That's your reality. Don't then be this pipsqueak voice over here saying, I've raised an objection to your forgiveness. I'm so holy that I don't forgive myself or whatever we may say. Welcome, welcome that forgiveness. Enjoy the reality of what he has done for us. So he then breaks into verse 35. And following, who who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So you see the questions. Who can be against us? Who will bring a charge? Who will be condemned? Who, Who will condemn us? Who will separate us? Who? Isn't that glorious? The stating of the power of God's salvation. And so... I would like to back up and just run quickly through the first part of this, beginning with verse 14. He speaks about our being sons of God. Verse 15, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery and fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons. This spirit enables us to say to him, Abba, Father. He bears witness with us that we are the children of God. That's part of the favor of forgiveness. You're forgiven, and as part of that, you're adopted, you're a child, and the Spirit is even working in your heart, trying to convince you, working always, so that you truly from the heart can say, Daddy, as Steve used the the term, Daddy, Father. 
And you know he smiles upon you. You know he regards you as his child. You see, that's living in God's favor. Waking up in the morning, rehearsing a passage like Romans 8, and seeing yourself as that day. I am a forgiven human being. I've been made a child of God. And the Spirit is at work even to convince me more and more so that I can enjoy being that child of God. Do you see how bent God is? Not just that you are favored, but that you know that you're favored. That's what impresses me about this passage. Here's God trying to convince us, you know, through Paul. Who's to condemn you? Who's to bring a charge? Who's going to separate you from my love? Who can be against you if I'm for you? And then the spirit, here's the spirit working in our hearts. He's your father. He's your father. Trust him. Cry out to him. Pour out your sin and your suffering. Know that he embraces you and he's adopted you as his child. There's the spirit working to do the same thing. And though we won't read it, this section, verses 18 through 23, speaks of the new creation that's coming. How the old creation is groaning. And how the old creation is waiting for you. Talk about the dignity that you have and the favor that you have in God. The favor that you have because of the forgiveness of sins. You are the coming kings and queens. And when you are raised in that final day, when you receive the what he calls your final adoption. So it's an interesting. Here's the spirit convincing you that you're adopted. And here is God saying, and here's the final end of your adoption. When you show up, all of creation is remade. And you reign and rule in that creation forever. That's the favor that you have. You see, condemning us for our sin is so far away from you're the dignified kings and queens that are going to inherit the whole world. There can't be any condemnation. There can't be anything but favor upon your life. And we don't deserve any of this. Amazing that Christ bears wrath. He lives a perfect life with God. And then he brings us alongside and says, you know, everything I've earned, I'm sharing it with you. You just have to tremble. You're sharing your inheritance with me? You're sharing the kingdom with me? You're sharing your reign with me? That's right. I died for you, and you're going to reign with me. It's love that we can't understand. And that's why in verse... um, 23, he says, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're adopted and we're waiting for our final papers, so to speak, our final inheritance that we, we, but what I'm trying to convince you of living in forgiveness is living with the glad expectation that we have this inheritance. And you see, that's why verse 18 is so important. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing the glory that's to be revealed. Because he had just said, if we suffer with him, we'll be glorified with him. It's not that you earn glory by suffering. It means if you're convinced that you'll be glorified with him, if you're so convinced in his goodness and favor upon you that it is coming in Christ Jesus, you'll suffer for him. 
You really will suffer for him. It's forgiveness that enables God's people to suffer. It's favor that allows you to suffer. It's not, it's not grit and courage and all that. I mean, that's bound up in it. But it's knowing that you're forgiven, that you have the favor of God, and you can let everything go because you have an inheritance. Then he talks about the Spirit helping us in our weakness and prayer. Here you go. The Spirit convincing us that we're children. And then he comes alongside us when we don't even know how to pray. And he groans with words that can't even be uttered. That's how involved God is in your life. But I can, in, in a given day, I can just think God ignores me. He's not watching. He doesn't see my pain. No, no, no. The, the Spirit is groaning with prayers. You don't even know how to pray because he's so concerned about your well-being. Everything in this passage, it, it makes me think, this is, of course, not a theologically accurate thought. It's like, you are so in to be devoted to every moment of your people. How do you take care of the rest of the world? <laughs> well, of course, he's the infinite God. But he is so utterly devoted to our good. And no surprise then that all the things that happen to us, all the difficulties that we face, the struggles. He can say in verse 28, for those who love God, all things work together for good. I think of it as a, if you think of a a dam where the sluices have the water pouring out and you expect you know, certain things to block the water from coming. You, you think certain things are going to block God's goodness or this circumstance is keeping me from God's goodness or hides his goodness. No, the sluices are always open. You know, whatever circumstance it is, the sluice is pouring out goodness in your life. Everything. If he didn't spare his son, he's going to give you every good thing always. The water is pouring out. The water is pouring out. I came across a painting uh, recently by uh, Guillaume Charbrun. He's a Frenchman. In Alabama, we'd say, Guillaume Charles Brun. Okay? We'd say, that's how you pronounce it. You don't need no accent. You know. <clears throat> but it's this painting called The Young Rag Seller. It's a girl. She's got a, a pole. And instead of, like you see guys on the side of the road picking up, uh, trash with the, they'll have a little, you know, needle kind of a metal a point at the end. Uh, the one she's holding uh, goes sideways, so it must be that they would work like this, you know, and pick them up, pick up these racks. And in the 1800s, in Paris alone, fifteen thousand children and teenagers were rag pickers or rag collectors. They think in France there were 100,000 kids that collected rags. And you think, what did they collect rags for? Well, it was a pretty valuable commodity because there was a huge recycling project to make paper. And so the fibers of the rags would be used and be reconditioned and recycled to make paper. So it was big business. And I... You may can see where this is going, that we were rags, right? 
We were filthy, stained, and used up. We just saw a passage in Ephesians and Sunday school that says, you were darkness. That's what we were, rags. He says earlier in this letter, there's none righteous, not one. But because we didn't know or appreciate the beauty of God's glad, other-focused, self-sacrificing love. We, we just wouldn't. We fell short of His glory. But God drew us to Himself. We entrust ourselves to this Christ who died for us, and we rags become clean white sheets of paper in God's sight and in His hands. He knows the things that are still wrong with us. He's not blind to our brokenness, but he joins us to Christ and he sees us in Christ. And his full favor is on us, just like it's on him. He takes unlimited delight in us. Paul says we're his workmanship. And you think of God taking that sheet of paper. What am I? There are hundreds of little tidbits of happiness that I receive from living with Kay Jordan. Um, This is just one little expression. When she has a pad of paper and she's about to maybe write something on it or sketch something, if that paper has letters or drawing, even if it has one line on it, tear it off, okay? And then I love this move. She's got this clean sheet of paper and with just childlike enjoyment, she always goes, just enjoying the clean paper that doesn't have a mark. Before she puts her first mark on there. I think of God doing that with you. I think of God taking you his clean sheet of paper. And he just rubs his hand over the beauty of it. The beauty of what he's made. And he begins etching. Writing a new story. Writing a whole different line. Writing his character into your life. A new future. Changes differences into your life. Because you are not what you were. You're not this rag. You're this glorious little piece of white paper writing, created in Christ Jesus for love and goodness. And that's why I ended with this verse, uh, Colossians 3. Because all of this shows itself in the way we love one another. You see where at the very end of this passage... He says, or or in verse 13, there's that phrase, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And this is the great capacity that God has created in forgiving us. And as Colossians shows, it's not just forgiveness, but it's being kind, it's being patient, it's being compassionate. It's all the love that we show to one another stemming from God's love to us, his forgiveness of us. So Ada and uh, Ryan sent me, knowing I was going to speak about forgiveness, uh, sent me this article that was in Men's Journal uh, about Craig T. Nelson. Now, kids, you know, you, you might not know his name, but this is the guy who is the dad in The Incredibles. All right. Mr. Incredible himself, Craig T. Nelson. Some may go all the way back to when he was uh, the coach Hayden Fox, right? Anybody? You know, coach. Yeah, see all the old people. No, it's just kidding. Uh, uh, I knew him most from parenthood uh, because he was uh, Mr. Braverman, the 
uh, Zeke Braverman, the, the, the father of the whole. Now, he's conducting this interview for Men's Journal, and after ask, uh, answering a bunch of questions, he gets this last question. So the interviewer says, considering that you're returning as the voice of Mr. Incredible in Incredibles 2, I have to ask, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Forgiveness. God says, you don't often hear forgiveness described as a superpower. I would say, you never hear <laughs> forgiveness. You know, don't often hear forgiveness described as a superpower. He answered, it's a little known commodity, little used. There's an awful lot of judgment and self-righteousness, but forgiveness is hard to come by. Guess where people should, can, and will taste forgiveness? It's here. It's among you people, you forgiven people who bask in God's forgiveness, who delight in God's forgiveness, who are in all that God has forgiven you. And you create a whole atmosphere of brokenness and humility so that people come in and think there's, there's grace here. There's, there's brokenness. I, 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 they can share their lives. They don't have to be perfect. You have this superpower, right? You've been forgiven in Christ. You're under his favor. The spirit of this forgiving God dwells in you. He enables you to know that you're favored and knowing that you're forgiven. This new reality of being a forgiven human being, you have a new capacity to love others. You know, we talk about wallowing in our sin. You can also wallow in how you've been sinned against, holding on to your hurt and pain, not forgiving others. You can use it to keep your negative view of people in life, your suspicion of people your justification for self-focus and self-protection. I read, I heard on NPR recently, a woman, one of the women that was kidnapped, sexually abused for a year. Now she's a mother of three. And she writes about forgiveness because she's absolutely forgiven this man. And she says, it's the greatest act of self-love. Now that's interesting. It's not why you do it, but It's part of the liberty of being a real human being in the image of God who forgives like God forgives. That's his freedom. That's his joy. The freedom of love and forgiveness. Forgiveness often is, I think of this because of Phyllis having this knee replacement. And All the pain of living outside of forgiveness and living in self-pity or living uh, in self-righteousness. And it is so painful to face all of that and to face all the things that are stopping you from enjoying God's forgiveness. Like, it's very painful to have a knee replaced. But then there can be healing, right? And before that, it's going to get worse. And worse and worse and worse. Oh God, give us grace to know your favor upon us in Christ. Let us pray. Oh Lord, bless us to know what you've done for us in Christ. Bless us, Lord, that we will rejoice in you. That we will be in awe of you. That we will live forgiven lives. In Jesus' name, amen.